a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. From CBTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Lily Lu. Coming up on the program. China's October manufacturing PMI hovers just below 15, while services PMI shows continued growth. We delve into numbers. We take a closer look at the key achievements in China's financial sector that supports the real economy and boost high-quality development. The 2023 World Youth Development Forum is underway in Beijing. The event features discussions on youth strength for solidarity and innovation. And we start a program with fresh data on China's manufacturing activity. Official figures show that the official purchasing managers index for the manufacturing sector stood at 49.5 in October, below the 50 threshold separating growth from contraction. Officials say that the contraction was affected by seasonal factors such as the early release of the、uh, sum demand before the National Day holiday. In the meantime, the non-manufacturing sector PMI decreased to 50.6 in October, but still stood above the 50 threshold, signaling that other sectors like services continue to expand. Experts believe that the overall momentum of economic recovery still needed to be strengthened. And according to a study from the Washington-based Center for Global Development, China's share of global manufacturing jobs is expected to rise to 43 percent by 2050, making China one of the only countries to see growth in such jobs. Advanced economies around the world are likely to see a drop in manufacturing jobs from 11.4 percent to 8.3 percent of the high-income workforce by 2050. And now let's get some discussions on the latest PMI data. We're joined by Xu Kai, associate professor at the School of Economics of Zhejiang University. Mr. Xu, great to have you on the show. So, when we see October witnessed a return to the contraction territory in China's factory activities,、uh, what insights can we glean regarding the state of the country's economic recovery? Well, there was always some seasonality.、Uh, I mean, in, in terms of PMI number、uh, in October in China. Uh, but having said that,、uh, that so 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 this contraction it、uh, shows that our recovery of the economy is quite tenuous, and、uh, probably more、uh, stimulus policy should be、uh, should be pushed out、um, to to keep the the momentum going.、Um, so so that's that's like of the the October number is really showing that. So, to what extent do you think was the、uh, seasonal factors or the Golden Week holiday responsible for the、uh, observed figure fluctuations? Okay,、um, it's widely believed that、uh, the, the, the Golden Week holiday definitely played an important role, but it's very hard to put a number on it. So,、uh, I would say that it's, it's, it's definitely a, a very important uh, factor, uh, but at the same time, we like、uh, it's, it, it, the number, the October number shows.、Uh, The recovery that、uh, needs that more work needs to be done in terms of the the recovery.、Uh, how would we、uh, address the unexpected easing of the、uh, service sector expansion? What support is needed? Yeah, so this is quite concerning. So、uh, even though I mean China is known as a manufacturing powerhouse、uh, around the world, but service has been playing a more and more important、uh, important part in China's economy, especially in terms of. Uh, its contribution to the growth of GDP. So the fact that the service、uh, sector still grow,、uh, but but not as much,、uh, below expectation, show that you know perhaps more targeted policies are needed 
uh, both both in terms of uh, boosting consumer uh, confidence uh, as well as uh, helping uh, maybe some financial policies that helped uh, the because the many firms that offered uh, are in the service sector. And also uh, during the recent Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation, China pledged to eliminate all barriers to foreign investment in the manufacturing sector. So what potential advantages will this arise from this commitment? Well, I think this is quite an important moment. The fact that we are committed to lifting all the all the restrictions. Uh, as economists, we we uh, we believe that uh, competition usually will bring more uh, better uh, lower prices, better products. Uh, so, in terms of for manufacturing in China, it it, it really lets the like. Not many firms, but I still there are some some firms in certain sectors right now are, are, are hiding, so to speak, uh, behind these protectionist uh, policies. But now uh, the fact that we are we are committed to lifting all these restrictions mean that competition is coming in, and as, as widely know, labor costs in China it's not a, a competitive factor anymore. So we we should really you know and innovate more to try to move up the value chain so that we can uh, stay uh, 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 competitive in terms of our manufacturing uh, power. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Xu Kai. Please stay tuned with us for more discussions down the program. Well, China's financial industry has achieved significant progress in enhancing the real economy's quality and efficiency. And today, China boasts the world's largest banking system and ranks second in insurance, stock and bond markets. My colleague Wang Tianyu is now by the board to bring us more on the decade-long evolution of China's financial sector. Take it away, Tianyu. Thanks, Lily. You're right. China's financial industry is huge, so keeping it growing rapidly but also steadily is not an easy task. Over the past decade, China's financial industry has achieved impressive and stable growth, providing strong support for the country's long-term economic and social development. First of all, China's central bank has reported a remarkable increase in RMB loans, rising from 81.43 trillion yuan in 2014, which was approximately 13.13 trillion U.S. dollars at that time, to 230 trillion yuan as of September this year. It marks an annual growth rate consistently exceeding 10%, aligning with nominal GDP growth. And secondly, the cost of financing for the real economy enterprises continues to decline. In September, the weighted average interest rate for new corporate loans in China was 3.85%, marking a historical low and 14 basis points lower than the same period last year. And third, the country has strengthened financial supervision through institutional reforms. The establishment of the National Administration of Financial Regulation in May underscores the commitment to regulate the financial industry, excluding the security sector. This move enhances standardization and regulatory efficiency to ensure finance plays a greater role in serving economic and social development. And lastly, RMBC internationalization has made significant progress. With its share in global trade financing reaching 5.8% in September, a 1.6 percentage point increase from the previous year, and now it ranks second, second globally. And back to you, Lily. Thank you very much, T. 
TNU grading sites. So China has been showing up efforts for a high-quality and steady financial development during the past few years. Let's get more discussions on the financial sector, and for that we bring back Mr. Xu Hai from Zhejiang University. Mr. Xu, so China has been putting an emphasis on the pivotal role of finance in bolstering the real economy, and we do see Chinese banks uh, taking out measures to reduce borrowing costs and broadening financial channels. Uh, what additional measures are necessary to provide robust support to businesses? Um, it is true that we are seeing uh, banks in China, they are more willing to, to lend. Uh, I think what's important right now is recognizing the, uh, the, the, the widely known and the, the, the inherent bias uh, within the, the banking sector, such as uh, favoring large firms over smaller firms. Uh, and favoring uh, like state-owned enterprises uh, over non-state-owned enterprises. I think this is the, the two areas that should be emphasized that, well, uh, in the past that this has been true that uh, this bias for, for one reason or another, the banks we uh, held, uh, that uh, now it's time to, uh, to recognize this and, 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 and realizing that, well, we, we have to uh, eliminate these biases and so so let all the firms, uh, large or small, uh, SOE or non-SOE, uh, uh, to, to be able to develop uh, in, in this uh, economy. And during this process, the uh, refining of uh, regulations and the supervision is uh, critical. What directions do you think should China's regulatory system take in its evolution? I think there are two important directions. Uh, one is the fact that we should recognize that uh, nowadays firms uh, and the, the, the idea of a financial firm uh, becomes much more complicated. Uh, for example, an e-commerce firm w would get into uh, the business of, of offering banking services or, or insurance products. A brokerage firm, they also offer insurance and um, some money managing uh, business. So it's very important that we, we should shift the focus of uh, regulation uh, in terms of the firm itself to the businesses, actually these firms, uh, uh, operate because we, we now is so com commonly seen this mixed business firms, uh, financial firms uh, in particular. So, so this is one direction. The other, the other direction is that uh, we should avoid trying to regulate after the fact and, and shift to regulate before the fact. So basically this means that we should be able to uh, better to detect uh, this uh, systemic, especially systemic risk uh, and, and, and try to eliminate this risk before something happens. So these are the two directions I think um, that our uh, supervisory uh, sector should uh, go, uh, should do uh, going forward. So, so speaking of uh, looking into the fundamentals of uh, businesses, how do you think is China's financial sector contributing to the nation's sustainable development? I mean, that encompasses areas like green initiatives, poverty reduction, and tech innovation. Yeah, so there, uh, we have made some progress, uh, for example, in terms of poverty alleviation. But to be frank, I think much more can be can be done. Um, so, so for example, if, if you look at uh, the uh, in terms of tech innovation, even though there there's some effort uh, in the previous uh, two or three years, uh, so new exchanges have have been uh, uh, prop, uh, uh, established so they have to help this uh, smaller, uh, uh, unprofitable firms uh, to to be listed. But we still see this hesitation of the firms to go public, uh, recognizing the fact that uh, profits are for this uh, financial innovation, for technology innovations, the profitability of these uh, innovations might lie very uh, many years ahead. There is no immediate profitability, 
Um, I, I think this applies uh, uh, also applies to uh, green uh, green um, technology. So uh, our financial sector uh, both uh, should should adopt a, a, a much more long term view to help these firms uh, to help these firms to grow, to give them credit, to give them equity, uh, so that they, they they have the funds to to grow. So a lot more can be done, and and I think this is one area they are worth exploring. Well, great insights. Thank you so much. That's Mr. Xu Kai, Associate Professor in the School of Economics, Zhejiang University. First. Today is the second day of the 2023 World Youth Development Forum. Approximately 2,000 young representatives from China and abroad attend the forum, and there were discussed ways of unlocking the full potential of young people to help the world to meet sustainable development goals. And for more on this, let's cross over to my colleague Aaron Liu, who's on the ground. Hi there, Aaron. Tell us more about what have you observed over there. Hi, Lily. The critical topics this forum aims to address include digital development. The purpose of raising this issue is to explore the development of youth in digital age and how they can play the leading role in innovation from the perspective of digital economy and application of digital technology. So, for more, let's welcome our guest, the program specialist of civil society and youth of UNDP in Asia and the Pacific. So, first, welcome to our live course. So, the first question is: What are the advantages of the young people in terms? Terms of digital economy. Thank you so much.、Uh, basically, what we are seeing is that young people are more networked, more connected, more、uh, creative in, the, in so many different ways than earlier generations. So they are embracing their digital natives. So they're really absorbing all the new ways of、uh, you know utilizing digital technology, and they're using that for for good. Uh, many are using it for climate, many improvements. Many are using it for creating jobs. So it's really fascinating to be at this event to see the how, how digital、um, solutions are making a big difference. You're right. So, what kind of environment is conducive for the young people? I think the most important thing is really looking at the pathways. I think skills and training is not enough. It's how you apply it and how these skills and around digital、uh, solutions can be. Used to really advance、uh, all sorts of challenges that we face with、uh, sustainable development goals. So for me, it's really、uh, an ecosystem, getting all partners, public, private,、uh, education systems to work together to look at a long journey, lifelong journey, and lifelong learning for young people, and through that really have make sure that digital is not just an end in itself, but really a means to making、uh, the world a better place. Okay, thank you for your time. So this also includes this forum, help the young people get new ideas. So thank you for your time. So and they, during this forum, and we kind of the environmental support for the young generations. The forum also featured the Global Youth Development Action Plan, showcasing the first batch of 100 exemplary projects. The implementation of this project involves the youth organizations, social enterprises, and media think tanks and universities in 43 countries. By selecting and promoting actions contributing to global development and the youth development, it seeks to strengthen cooperation between young people. They said more than 1.5 million young people have taken part in China's party elevation efforts in rural areas. Chinese youth have also been involved in the social services. Experts say, let's remember that young people hold the key to our future. We are here to support them and work with them together for just a peace and inclusive society. Earlier, I spoke to some guests. Take a listen. And what we need、um, is to ensure 
transformative education skills and mindsets building on this digital connectivity? Can digital solutions offer that kind of content? And we need blended approaches with facilitated instruction by teachers. We also need to ensure that every child and youth are included, that no one is left behind. So what that means is ensuring low and no-tech approaches in remote areas while we work to scale digital connectivity and solutions to achieve those outcomes. Those opportunities are also, um, also depend on the investments that governments and, and other actors play in terms of connectivity. So what we have uh, seen uh, from our studies at the ILO is that if the proper investments on broadband co connectivity are made, we can create at least new 8.4 million new jobs for young people from now to 2030. In light of artificial intelligence evolution, our team has made substantial knowledge. Take, for instance, the Asian Games context, where our aim is to engage a broader audience. To achieve this, we've embraced an all-encompassing approach, enabling billions to partake while satisfying the artistic excellence standards set by the director's team. We are committed to harmonizing both these facets. Well, today is the 10th anniversary of the completion of a highway from Baomi County to Montour in the southeast of the Qinghai Xizang Plateau. The construction of the road marks the end of the region's isolation from the rest of the world. Our three-part series covers the changes in Montour over the past decade. CTTN's Guo Tianqi visits a villager who used to be a porter but now has his own trucking business thanks to the infrastructure construction. Pingcho's former home, Gandong Village, is located in the north of Muotuo County, deep in the Yellow Zambo Grand Canyon. Before the road was completed, residents could only reach the town area by foot. The 50-kilometer journey would usually take three days. At the end of September, there was an avalanche at the Shuawala Mountain, and many of us were buried. We were so lucky to survive. I never want to go over the mountain again. Motuo is surrounded by mountains on three sides. If you entered from Bumi County in the north, you had to climb over Galangla Mountain, and the narrowest part, the road was only 30 centimeters wide. To enter from Linzhi City in the west, you had to climb over a 4,000-meter-high snow-capped mountain. This is Lao Huzui Channel in English, the tiger's mouth, indicating the danger of the road. While it used to be a very narrow trial that people and livestock can only walk around, but following the completion of the channel, it only takes less than four hours to drive from Linzhi City to Motuo County, a journey that used to take more than four days on foot. Ten years ago, the Motuo Road in Tibet was open to traffic, and the road construction also brought opportunities for villagers. Gamma Pingzuo became a truck driver. He also bought a bulldozer to use in road construction projects. Our truck is busy all day. We have so many orders. We're hiring someone else to drive it. In 2019, Dulongang Village set up a truck transport team, which increased the villagers' income by more than 3 million yuan through centralized organizing and dispatching. 
I believe our future will get better and better. When we repay the loan of the excavator, we want to go on a trip together. Because of the difficult conditions, construction of Motuo Road took more than 50 years. Through a northern route, it is now connected to China's national highway network, going all the way to the coast and the rest of the country. Guotianqi CGTN, Motuo Xizang Autonomous Region. Wall Street stocks rallied on Monday ahead of an interest rate decision by the U.S. Central Bank, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average leading the gain. John Terrett reports from the New York Stock Exchange. On the Monday session on Wall Street, there was plenty of green on the screen, and the reason for that, I think, it was rather felt that last week's sell-off was sort of overcooked. So we came back a little bit ahead of what is going to be a very, very busy week on Wall Street, which I'll tell you about more in just a second. First of all, here are the numbers at the end of Monday: the Nasdaq up 1.1 percent, the S&P 500 ahead by 1.2 percent, 49 points to stand at 4166, and that is the best day for the S&P since. August, Bitcoin was down about half a percent, and in the week to come, a very busy week. On Wednesday, we get the Federal Reserve's rates decision. We're expecting a pause. On Thursday, Apple will give us their earnings. On a couple of days after it was revealed that iPhone 15 sales are being dented in China because Chinese people are preferring Huawei smartphones over the iPhone 15, so it is reported by Bloomberg, among others. And on Friday, we get the jobs report for the month of October. Also, the Treasury in Washington will give us its. Funding plans for at least the next quarter. It is no wonder then that they're calling this Hell Week on Wall Street. They really are Hell Week on Wall Street and on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Demand for gold from central banks remains strong in the third quarter. The World Gold Council reported on Tuesday. The council said that net central bank buying of 337 tons was the third strongest quarter in its data series. Although it failed to match the purchases in third quarter of last year, demand from central banks was 14% higher than the same period of last year at a record 800 tons. And China's demand for gold bars and coins was also strong in third quarter, reaching 82 tons, that is up 16% year-on-year. Despite all the economic doom and gloom that could put a damper on Halloween, people are still celebrating the season, but on a budget. And according to research, rising inflation is affecting consumers' costume choices for this annual event, that's filled with thrills, chills, and spills. Jody Jacobs checked out some of this year's trends. It's Halloween, a time for the young and the young at heart to dress up and go on a candy crawl. So ahead of All Hallows Eve, I decided to check out which costumes are trending this year. I'm told pop culture icons like Barbie, Wednesday Adams, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles top the list of outfits for this year. Probably not something that I would be comfortable in. Maybe something like this or this. Or perhaps this. There's a costume choice here for everyone. Well, Halloween is always an eagerly anticipated holiday, especially here in the U.S. The experts say there's some unique factors this year, like the scary buzz phrases of inflation and economic strain. We are seeing some people that are like that, and obviously we have options for that. But just like everybody else, inflation hit. Like we try to work with as best as we can. We have a whole range of costumes from like 
some like more package costumes that are, like can start at like anywhere from like fifty to like eighty nine to hundred bucks, and then we have high end costumes, suits of armor and everything like that. Some of those things can be really super extravagant, like film quality costumes. So we've been seeing both move. In a recent survey published by the Halloween and Costume Association, two thirds of Americans seem to be wanted by inflation with around 36% saying they will be spending less this Halloween compared to last year. 42% of respondents say price is definitely impacting their costume choices. And while there continues to be much excitement around this, the most wonderful time of fear, the Halloween industry is worried they might get ghosted by consumers. Jody Jacobs, CGTN, New York. Shanghai Disney Resort is a place where East meets West. The mix of Disney's magic com combined with elements from Chinese culture is demonstrated at almost every corner. CGTN reporter Lin Nan gives us a taste of this cultural mix during Halloween season. Get ready for a Halloween extravaganza at Shanghai Disney Resort, where pumpkins, costumes and golden leaves set the stage for a classic celebration. Visitors who love dressing up can revel in the opportunity to do costumes and show off their wicked side with friends. I'm coming here and dressing up specifically for the Halloween party. I rented the costume. When I entered the park and saw so many princesses, I felt I'd come home. I was so happy. Since its grand opening in 26, Shanghai Disney Resort has been a firm favorite among local tourists. Authentically Disney and distinctly Chinese, that's been a guiding principle behind the Shanghai Disney Resort. You can find the brand of Disney magic and Chinese culture almost everywhere in the park. The Garden of the Twelve Friends showcases 12 mosaic murals that re-image Disney characters as the 12 Chinese zodiac signs. Beyond the recognizable decor, Shanghai Disney Resort hosts lively celebrations for both Chinese and Western holidays throughout the year. I can see some Chinese elements here and there. That's why I want to dress up like this, to add more Chinese elements to celebrate Halloween here. Many people wanted to take a photo with me. I'm so proud. This unique cultural fusion at Shanghai Disney Resort not only attracts locals, but draws visitors from all over the world. I've always wanted to come to Shanghai Disney. I've heard some really cool things about it. I'm really excited. <laughs> we just got here about 10 minutes ago, and so, <laughs> so far it's pretty cool. The castle's amazing. A new themed land based on Zootopia is also set to open at Shanghai Disneyland this December, making it the world's first for the popular animation and the park's eighth themed land. Lina, CGTN, Shanghai. And with that, I'm closing out this edition of Global Business here on CDTN. Thanks for being with us. I'm Lily Lu in Beijing. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now.